Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. week I'm sharing a featured artist as well as a guest interview. I'll share a bit about the featured artist here as well as sharing images of their work on Instagram and on the website. This week's featured artist is Jerry Nimiroko. I hope I'm pronouncing that somewhere close to bright. So he is a multimedia artist from Plainville, Connecticut. He studied illustration at Central Connecticut State University, while interning at the New Britain Museum of American Art Collections Department. His recent work explores the concept of personal space. In his artist statement, Jerry says, Interior personal spaces have been the subject of my recent work. What someone keeps in their space is a direct reflection of their interests and passions. A person is allowed to be who they are without fear of judgment or acceptance. It's a very special moment when someone invites you into their own personal sanctuary, the significance of which is often lost to a million other social scenarios. It's important for everyone to have a space where they feel completely comfortable to express who they really are. In today's society, we often have to wear many different hats or play some sort of character of ourselves. Ah, and I feel like that statement is so resonant right now while we're all zooming from our personal space, seeing students want to either, you know, I often see my daughter wanting to show off everything or other students wanting to, you know, turn their cameras off and not be so vulnerable. So this connection to personal space is really has like a double meaning right now. So you can view more of Jerry's work on our blog, teachingartistpodcast.com slash featured artists, or his website is www.jerrynimiroko.com. And I will link to this. Would you like to be featured? You can head over to our website to submit your work at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. Justin Bursk talked about embracing imperfections and wrestling with the work. He shared how his time has shifted over the years, from pushing through an MFA program while parenting two small children, to seeing that time open up as his children become adults. I loved hearing about the metaphors in his work and the idea of moving mountains in his small sculptures built precariously onto wind-up toys. He uses shapes, line, and color so intentionally, along with his signature two circles representing eyes or binoculars and the idea of looking. It was inspiring to hear how he keeps a positive attitude during this challenging time while teaching hybrid from a cart. Whew! Justin Bursk lives, works, and plays in his hometown with the help of his family and 600 students. He has taught in Neshaminy School District for 25 years at every level, most recently at Herbert Hoover Elementary for the past 10 years. 
Justin has exhibited locally and nationally, including Hyde Park Art Center in Chicago, Seton Hall University in New Jersey, The Firehouse in New York, and locally at Vox Populi Philadelphia and the Institute of Contemporary Art at the University of Pennsylvania. He attended Tyler School of Art at Temple University, where he received a BFA in painting and an art education certificate, and he attended the University of the Arts for an MFA in painting. Let's hear from Justin. I am talking with Justin Bursk today, and I would love to hear more about your background. I feel like it's always a good starting point just to hear kind of how you got into both teaching and art, and then also where those two started to overlap. Okay, no problem. I'd say I always liked making things, you Mm. know, when I was little. I didn't really think about being an artist when I was really small, I'd say elementary and even into middle school. But then we had to pick a major in our ninth grade year. And I was going to do drafting because I liked construction and building things. But my one friend told me that there was a lot of math involved with that and that I should be an art major with him. So I ended up signing up to be an art major with him. And Mm. that kind of kept going from there. And then in high school, I was not a very good student, (laughs) but, you know, I was interested in art and my father teaches at the local community college. So Mm -hmm. he talked me into taking some art classes at the community college level while I was at high school. And that pretty much provided me with a portfolio that got Mm -hmm. me into college because my grades weren't going to get me there. Mm -hmm. And then once I got started going to Tyler School of Art, you know, everything just kind of kept going from there. I was a painting major. And then roughly, I'd say my junior year, my parents talked to me about what I wanted to do after I got out. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, you're not really going to make a living off being a painter, especially if you wanted things like a house or, you know, those kind of things. (laughs) And my whole family's teachers. So Mm -hmm. they said, you know, what do you think about teaching? And I'm pretty easygoing. So I said, sure, I'll give it a try. So I joined the education department along with the painting department. So it was kind of like a dual major. And Mm -hmm. both departments kind of discouraged being with the other. Like you have to choose to be a painter or you have to choose to be a teacher. And, you know, at that point in my life, that just kind of made me want to try to do both. Mm -hmm. So I stuck with it and went right out of college and started substituting. And I've been teaching for about 25 years now. And I've continued my studio practice over the course of those 25 years as well. Yeah, amazing. And what do you feel like has helped you the most in being able to continue both things? I think they're mutually inspiring. You know, as a teacher, I get to play with a lot of materials and struggle with a lot of students, (laughs) (laughs) which is a lot like being in the studio. And Mm -hmm. the studio has always kind of been a release as well as kind of a place to explore my own little ideas and my materials as well. And I've just had to kind of adjust my expectations of what being an artist and a teacher at the same time means. You know, I'm exhausted, so (laughs) I don't participate in a lot of shows. I don't really need to make a living off my art, so that kind of Mm -hmm. gives me the chance to do whatever I want, which has been, you know, very nice. But at the same time, you get jealous of those people that you see 
friends that are more business savvy and put more mm-hmm. time into the business side of art. But then, you know, it, it ebbs and it flows. It ebbs and it flows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like school holiday times are when you get a lot of time in the studio or is it more of sort of a break <laughs> from it all? I'd say yes, like the summertime when mm-hmm. I have, you know, and I've, I mean, 25 years, I've only been able really financially to take the last I'd say three or four summers off, but Mm -hmm. still you're not as exhausted with all the lesson planning and all that stuff. So those breaks have given me the chance to really delve in a little deeper. Mm -hmm. This year, I've been able to kind of structure my studio time as just like I've been calling them small changes. So I, (laughs) that's how I I post it on Instagram. If I just get in the studio for a half an hour, I just make Mm -hmm. a couple small moves on a painting you know, it's satisfying and I can say, you know, it feels good that you really Mm -hmm. just put in a little bit of time. Yeah. And seeing that needle move just a little bit, a little bit more and a little bit more, it also kind of inspires you to keep going back and doing those small moves. Yes. Yes. And then you realize that they're really, you know, big moves for you a lot of times Mm -hmm. and it just keeps the practice moving forward which is really what you shoot for. Yeah. And then in terms of teaching, what is your kind of teaching style? I'd say I'm very process-based, very playful. I really push experimentation and I really Mm -hmm. kind of try to push. I tell my little kids all the times, you're not going to give this to your grandmother for her birthday. It's not that (laughs) special. It's just for fun. It's just an exercise. Let's just have Mm -hmm. fun with it and move on because they get so frustrated with what they expect the artwork mm-hmm. to end up looking like. So, I mean, for me, I'd give up grading altogether if I could. I feel like, especially in the arts, you know, you can gauge your development through seeing how you use those materials from in kindergarten versus how you use them in fourth grade. And it's mm-hmm. usually undeniable. So I don't really push too much on, you know, if it has these three colors, you get these many points, you mm-hmm. know? And all of my students have such unique ways about them that comparing themselves to each other, I find to be a problem as well. So Mm -hmm. I try to explain to them, yours is not supposed to look like theirs. So a very free and open dialogue in my classroom. Yeah, I feel like that's a really encouraging space for kids to have that sort of freedom and yeah, encouragement just to be who they are. Yes, exactly. And understand that their differences are important and we celebrate Mm -hmm. them. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And you're teaching K through 12 now or is it, are you just elementary? I'm teaching kindergarten through fourth grade. So the first five years of my career, I was lucky to have a lot of long-term positions. So I jumped Mm -hmm. from elementary to middle school to high school to teaching, to subbing everything all the time for a year. Yeah. Then I got luckily and there was a photo position at the high school and nobody else really wanted to teach photo. So Mm -hmm. I was able to move up there and I spent 10 years building a program there and actually got to get away from photo and back to painting, which I love. And then after 10 years, the population went down and the number of kids that were signing up for art classes went down. So Mm -hmm. I was low man on the totem pole. So I got bumped down to elementary and Mm. broke my heart. But once you get there and you get used to it again, you know, you fall in love with that too. So now I've been Mm -hmm. there for about 10 years. Yeah. And do you feel like you have kind of a favorite grade level to teach? 
I would have said high school right away. Yeah. The year after I got bumped. <laughs> but it's hard, you know, we do what's called a preference form every year. It hmm. doesn't really dictate where you end up, but it lets administration know where you would like to go. Mm-hmm. And I always put high school thinking I should go back there. And my son is actually graduating from high school this year. So Ooh. way back when I was like, oh, it'd be great to teach here when my kids are there. Yeah. Now living through teenagers, I know <laughs> that's, that wouldn't have been a good thing. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I try not to do favorites because, you know, the grass mm-hmm. is always greener on the other side. I'd say as far as high school is concerned, I like working with kids at that level because mm-hmm. they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But I also love teaching the little ones because they're so playful and open to experimentation. But, you know, it's hard to choose between the two. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I've had similar shifts. I used to have the same thing. I always was like, I want to teach high school. I don't want to teach, you know, younger kids. And now I've been at the elementary level for a while and I have a five-year-old. And I feel like becoming a mom also shifted that for me wanting to work with the younger kids and just seeing the joy that they bring to the classroom. So yeah, it's hard to pick favorites. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, when you're teaching the kindergarten, I mean, the elementary, it's such a powerful thing to mm-hmm. be a part of this child's life from kindergarten to fourth grade. I mean, it's such a huge developmental stage in their life. It's a lot of responsibility and it's super exhausting. Like the pace of elementary <laughs> is just, I mean, I went from teaching high school Let's say I had four or five classes. You're only talking like 200 kids and you're only seeing them like every other day. When I moved down to elementary, I think I had 850 students. Mm. So it was like, you know, the pace is just so much more. Yeah. And even the energy that you have to kind of bring (laughs) into each class is more. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. Kind of meeting their energy level or sometimes ramping their energy level down a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, it's a dance you got to participate in every day. Oh, totally. Yeah, but I do agree. You talked about it being a big responsibility, and especially from a parent perspective, I see that a lot more now, just seeing how much my daughter reveres her teachers and looks up to them and just loves them. Yeah, and it's great. I mean, it's awesome to have that opportunity. One of the questions you had sent was something about what would you tell a teacher that you know you didn't realize when you were in school and you really can't understand the happiness you can bring a child from just waving to them or being that smile that they see every day or mm-hmm. being that sense of security that they get to see every day and you know once you see the kid that doesn't want to go home for thanksgiving you know mm-hmm. or gets riled up because the summer's coming and they know they won't have the stability of you and your school you know it's a pretty amazing thing yeah it can be heartbreaking and heart making heart opening yeah, absolutely all at absolutely. the same time yes <laughs> and right now how is your teaching situation i think you were saying you were hybrid we started out the year hybrid, like a, mm-hmm. a blue and red or you know an A and B schedule. And then mm-hmm. we quickly moved to all in right after Thanksgiving. You know, the teachers were not happy about it. Obviously, it's an anxiety-ridden kind of situation right now, but we're doing it all. So I teach the kids in front of me, and then we also have an option to be virtual. So mm-hmm. I also have my laptop and a Zoom up. So I'm Mm. teaching some children at home at the same time that I'm teaching the kids in class. 
and I lost my classroom because oh. of spacing and a special mm-hmm. ed teacher needed my room. So now I'm on a cart and we have to be equitable with the kids that are at home material wise. Mm -hmm. So we're really just using markers, crayons, and pencils. So I really Mm -hmm. miss all of the the clay and the printmaking and all the different Mm -hmm. processes we get to use. Yeah. So it's frustrating. It's hard, but you know, it is what it is. So I'm trying to keep a, (laughs) you know, a good look at it and go for it, but it gets very difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot to be juggling both online and in person at the same time. And then also on a cart (laughs) with limited materials. It's a lot. Then you're going into those other teachers' classrooms and they Mm -hmm. usually would have their prep in that classroom during that time. So it's an awkward situation in that regard as well. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to get through to the kids that are on the Zoom when you also have the kids in front of you, giving them enough time and enough attention. So it's exhausting and it's difficult. And I'm hoping it only lasts till the end of this year. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I hope so too for you. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of other teachers in that same position. Is there anything that's kind of helping you other than as much as you can, keeping a positive attitude? Are there any tools or tips that are helpful? I've found, that, well, my team is awesome. So all mm-hmm. we have uh, six elementary schools. So we've been able to work really closely together, all the art teachers. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of take turns doing different lessons for different levels. So we're learning a lot from each other. Mm-hmm. And we're all video stars now on the internet. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> and then my team at school, the library and the music teacher and the gym teacher, we are all really great. We all work really well together as well. So, mm-hmm. just the support of those other specialists has really mm-hmm. been what's getting me through it. And the kids still love it, even if you're just using crayons, mm-hmm. but you're limiting it to you know something like monochromatic, or you're dealing with color theory, or you're dealing with mm-hmm. different ways to transfer things. The play is still there, but it, it's hard for them because they're not going into that other environment. Like the art room, it was like this magical place. Now they're just stuck in their classroom all day. Yeah, it's definitely a different experience for them. But I do love how there's still that excitement there. Yeah. One printmaking method I've done that maybe you already have done and you know about is the marker printing. That's like the one version of printmaking that I've been able to keep doing during all of this with limited materials, just using like water-based markers on any sort of smooth surface, like foil or a bag or anything, and then you know, wetting the paper and printing that way. Huh. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'll have to try that. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's a little bit hit or miss. Like the first time you do it, you'll sort of figure out, is it enough water? Is it too much water? And it all comes out blurry. Right. And then I tell them, you know, like, use your muscles. You've got to really press, like, give it a good massage. (laughs) (laughs) This paper had such a long day. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and what are you using to add the water? I like to do it with a sponge, just ah, okay. any kind of kitchen sponge, but you could use a spray bottle. Right. Yeah. And I think there's probably a bunch of videos on YouTube showing different teachers doing it, like whatever their method is. Right, right. Huh. All right. I'm working on a Romare Bearden Ooh. canvas module sometime soon. So that might be a really good addition. 
Yeah, I like it also as one part of a project. So maybe we print a patterned background because that can sort of withstand a little bit of blurriness or like not printing all of it. Yeah, exactly. And then you draw back into it or collage with it or kind of play with it in so many different ways. And, you know, you brought up Romare Bearden. I'm curious if there's other artists that you're bringing into your classroom and sharing with students and how you're kind of being intentional now about choosing, selecting which artists you share. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, being a practicing artist throughout Mm -hmm. my whole time has really been helpful for me and beneficial to my students because I've always kind of incorporated the historic canon figures, but also mm-hmm. a lot of contemporary artists. Mm-hmm. With the little ones, you know, how much they absorb, there's not much that they absorb. So really it's just getting some a face in front of them, you know, mm-hmm. and getting the artwork. And now with all these videos that we're putting into Canvas, you can get the, their actual voices. So yeah. I love Kendi Wiley for portraiture mm-hmm. and Michelaine Thomas. Demographically, we are the majority of our population is white, but I also have a lot of African-Americans and a lot of Hispanic students in my classroom as well. So I like mm-hmm. to you know, include as many artists of color as possible and as mm-hmm. well as women artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I keep hearing and just thinking about how important it is for all the kids, you know, the white kids as well, to see all of these other people that are not necessarily often represented in the historical canon of art. Yes. Um, to see artists of color and female artists. Right. And I, yeah. I even have a third grader that ever since he was in kindergarten has been saying to me, how come all the artists are French? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, well, they're not all French. I'm like, sure. I'm like, you know, we got these guys and these guys, but you know, and you know, a lot of the more interesting work to them, I think is work that's happening now too. I mean, Mm -hmm. they don't want to just look at, you know, fruit bowls by by Cezanne, (laughs) showing them something by Michelaine Thomas that has like glitter and beautiful fabrics or, you know, something by Polly Affelbaum that has, you know, just dyed fabrics that are draped over things. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it really helps me try to teach them we're not just trying to make things that look like things. We're just mm-hmm. trying to put things together to see what they end up looking like. Because again, fighting that tendency to want to make the representational is a little bit tricky. Yeah. And I love the way you put that. We're not just making things that look like things. <laughs> right. It's a good way to describe it with kids. Yes. And I tell them, I'm like, listen, if you you know went out on the basketball court, do you expect to slam dunk it right away? And mm. they're like, no. And I'm like, exactly. Well, then you're going to draw a face. You can't expect the nose to look exactly right the first time. It just mm-hmm. doesn't happen. It takes lots of practice. Yeah, totally. And then do you also share your own work with students? Do you kind of bring that into the classroom at all? I usually have like maybe a piece that's a screensaver. So, you know, as I'm closing windows, they might see things once in a while. The last, I was only in three little group exhibitions last year, and two of them were teacher and student exhibitions. Mm -hmm. So one was at Tyler School of Art, and you applied with your work, partnered with students' work. And then the other was the same kind of show at a community center near where we live. So you know, if they're that connected that they, you know, and I post it on both 
the school website as well as, you know, my own Facebook and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of them see my work that way more than anything else. Don't really have it hanging up in the classroom or anything like that. When I was at the high school level, they were probably hyper aware of what I was doing because Mm -hmm. they could find me on social media and I post a lot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. It's interesting how some teachers kind of have their social media more locked down or a different name that's harder to find. Yeah. And I was that way originally with the high school kids. You know, I always like, I'm not going to accept your friend request (laughs) on (laughs) Facebook until you graduate. That's just a bad idea. But once they graduated, it was awesome because, I mean, I'm still in contact with some of my students and I get to watch what they're doing now, which, you know, wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago. And my Instagram, because I want it viewable by everyone, I made that. Originally, it was private, but then I was like, this is the easiest way to show what I'm making. Mm -hmm. So I need to keep it open. And again, the floodgates just open. So everybody's there. And then Facebook now, because I'm in elementary school, you know, parents friend me and, you know, it keeps me honest. Yeah. (laughs) If I have the PTO moms on Facebook, you know, I'm not going to be cursing on there or saying anything stupid. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You have to be more careful, more professional. (laughs) Yes. And I mean, especially in the last year with all the Mm -hmm. political, you know, it kept me posting, you know, good, happy things. You know, I post a lot about my running. I post a lot of nature pictures, animal pictures, and my art. Yeah. I like to try to keep social media for fun things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not all the arguing. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, that's something that I've struggled with a little bit. I also have my Instagram public, but then I get nervous sometimes if I'm sharing work that I wouldn't share in the classroom, you know, that I feel like is not totally appropriate for elementary kids. I'm like, ah, is anybody going to see this? (laughs) Yes, yes. And again, it just, it makes you hyper aware of what you're putting out into the world. And usually if there was something that was slightly edgy, I feel like since I'm posting it on there versus it's not necessarily through my school district. Right. Legally, I'm good, you know. Right. (laughs) I might get some questions or some sideways glances, but I'm the art teacher, you know. I got tattoos on my forearms and a big beard, so they expect me to be a little weird. (laughs) Right. I love it. Uh. Hey listeners, I'm jumping in here because I have an ask of you. If you are enjoying the show, I would so appreciate your support. I'm humbled and grateful for all the interest in this show over the past several months and for the messages I've received letting me know that this podcast has resonated with you. It has been so inspiring to hear from you. Thank you. This podcast does take time, effort, and resources to share with you every week. And I want to, I plan to, keep it going and stay focused on highlighting and inspiring artists who teach while also continuing to grow this community and dreaming up additional ways to help you. One way to accomplish this is through direct listener support. Your support would really help the show and community grow. So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take less than 60 seconds. 
It's at anchor.fm slash teachingartistpodcast slash support. You can contribute one, five, or ten dollars per month. If Teaching Artist Podcast is a part of your week and you love what we're doing, please consider visiting anchor.fm slash teachingartistpodcast slash support or just clicking the link in the show notes and supporting us in any way that you can today. And before we get too far into talking more about your work, could you maybe describe your work? Yeah, sure. I think of myself as an abstract painter, but I use images to create a relationship or initiate some sort of reaction from the viewer and for my own selfish reasons. Um, Things like boats and Mm -hmm. water and oceans and mountains and sails and plants, you know, very Mm -hmm. basic things that everybody can have a connection to, but I'm not concerned with making these things very representational. Mm -hmm. Everything I do is very humble, I feel like, and it might be categorized as maybe a naive, but for Mm -hmm. me, I think of it more as like a humble mark because I'm really interested Mm -hmm. in using basic colors basic patterns and basic images just to engage a viewer in a relationship. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my paintings, or actually at this point, all of my paintings have two circles. So it's kind of like if you put your hands up over your eyeballs and made binoculars. Mm -hmm. And I think originally it probably came from Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner (laughs) and seeing those things in cartoons. Then it came back into my life maybe I'd say 20 years ago, just by accident through my art. And now I just kind of use that as a device every time. So my secretary, she follows me on Instagram and she says, you know, what are these two circles? (laughs) And I said, well, they're kind of just to make you think about looking. That's Mm -hmm. what I want you to think about when you're in front of a painting. What are you doing? You're looking, you know, what are you trying to find? That's not really my problem. You can find whatever you want in my paintings, but I want to engage you in looking. And it's, you know, it's like looking through something, but at the same time, it's something looking back at you. Yeah, I love that. You know, I was going to ask you about the circles and then you started sharing about them. And I love that. I totally see the binoculars. And then it reminds me also of those scenic spots off of the highway. I'm not sure how much of that exists in the East, but yeah. Yeah where they've got the little binocular thing. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So that connection. And there's like at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, there's a Duchamp room. And Mm. the last piece he made, it's these big brown wooden doors with these two holes that you look through to see Mm. this amazing world that he created inside. So I'm sure that had some sort of reference to it as well. Mm -hmm. And then over, I'd say, the course of the last five years, I have pretty much just gone to working on paper and working Mm -hmm. small and working with water-based mediums. So mainly tempera and just like the Mm. tempera cakes, just like the ones I used in my classroom and gouache because I love how the matte finish of the gouache reacts to your eyes Mm. and a lot of pencil. And I've even, you know, now I'm doing pretty much most of my work is let's say seven by 11. So I've really simplified (laughs) as far as the materials I'm using. 
and minimized so that, you know, storage gets out of hand once you've been making art for 30 years. It, oh, yeah. <laughs> and when I was a Tyler, you know, it was always a push for big paintings, big paintings, big mm-hmm. paintings, which I love to do. But once you have to move them 15 mm-hmm. times, you know, you start rethinking your reasons for making things like that. Yeah. And then uh, besides the paintings, I make small interactive sculptures mm-hmm. that are on wind up toys typically. So some of them are wind up walkers, some of them are wind up shakers, and those always are mountain based. And a lot of times they have sails on them and they kind of go under the umbrella of moving mountains because I thought that was just kind of, you know, funny because, you know, we're moving mountains is such an epic idea. Mm -hmm. And these sculptures I make are, you know, really pathetic. They're like every wind up toy you get at a cheap dollar store. You know, they fall down. You have to wind them back up. You know, (laughs) a very small, pathetic joy in watching them try to act out whatever they act out. But again, tinkering. I love to tinker. So I'm either tinkering with these toys and these materials or with my artwork. Or with my painting, with the paintings. So when I'm making a painting, it's the same thing. I have no idea where I'm going with it. Mm -hmm. When I start it, I have my materials, I make my circles, and then I start going back and forth. And then usually I come up with, or I fall into the pattern of doing certain things like painting grass or painting vines coming down over the circles. And really, for me, it's just the opportunity to move the material across the page and see where it takes me. Yeah, and I love these sculptures. I didn't realize until you said it that they're on the wind-up toys. And, yeah. you know, I love all the metaphors in there, that these are so tiny, like these little mountains, that they're, like you said, falling over and sort of unstable. Yes. But then they're also, it seems like, intentionally a little bit crudely made. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, they're not meant to last. When people try to use them, And we have this thing called Philadelphia Open Studio Tours every year. Mm -hmm. And me and my wife share a studio at home, but we also have a studio down in the city. Mm -hmm. And you open up your door and hundreds of people come through because there's hundreds of studios open. And a lot of people bring their kids and then they see these little toys. And, you know, again, it breaks that barrier of you're not supposed to touch the art and their kids want to play with them. And then they're always very nervous. I'm like, it's okay if they break it. I'm like, it's, it's meant to not last. It's okay. You know, I love that. I'd love to see videos of those. I don't know if you have made any little videos. I just went back. I thought of that same thing. Yeah. (laughs) And so I went back on my other computer and I had one that I just posted to Instagram and to Facebook today because I was like, Oh, I should throw one of these up. It was for a project at our studio, there's this huge gallery called the Icebox. So it's about, mm. I don't know, 150 feet long. It's about 60 feet wide and it's about 50 feet tall. So it used to be mm. a flash freezing facility. Uh, and they did, wow. the curators that used to be there would have an open call for a video thing. And so I applied the one time and this video was chosen. And it was amazing because the video gets posted. It's the size of a football field. So these little sculptures that I can hold in my hand are now 15 feet tall. And it was just, it was amazing. Wow. But yeah, the videos and the sculptures are always kind of in the back of my head, like, oh, you're not doing these things enough 
justice. Like I got to document them and video them, but I always, you know, maybe I shoot a little video and post it on Instagram. I never formalize it. And that's kind of my downfall Mm -hmm. with everything. I enjoy the making so much that I never get around to the uh, formalizing and getting the stuff out there. Yeah, it takes up so much time. There's all the time in the studio, but then it's almost equal or even sometimes it feels like you have to spend more time with all the documenting really nicely and writing and then applying to things. Yes. Maintaining a website, all these things. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It becomes a lot. It really is. Yeah. I'm also just looking again at your paintings with the circles. Do you mask them off at all? No. Again, I try to draw them. I draw them in one go. I try to do no Mm -hmm. erasing. So again, when I'm making them, they're always, you know, somewhat wrong. You know, I'm (laughs) never really trying to make a perfect circle. I'm just trying to draw that line around until it touches again and be okay with it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no masking. Cool. Yeah. And then I see, I don't know if you're using any printmaking methods, but it feels so many of them feel like very aligned with printmaking. Yeah. If you're not, it might be something to explore. Yeah. And there's uh, a couple pieces. I do some relief printmaking. So Mm -hmm. linoleum. So there's one linoleum plate that I've done three different versions of. So a a lot of times I'll, I'll, yeah, with the boats as they're touching. So a lot of times I'll print those and then I'll go back into them with paint Mm -hmm. and pastel and whatnot. Yeah, I love that. And I like that as something to show students as well. Anytime I teach printmaking, I always teach it as something with so many options that, you know, you can print it again and again, and you can try different colors and you can like cut it up and draw on top of it and paint on top of it. Yeah, exactly. And especially at the elementary level, I mean, they are so excited to just print because it's just so quickly satisfying when you just put that down and then you pull that paper off that first time Mm -hmm. when you're giving the demo to the kids and they're like, what? You know, and then you, if you take that one step further and do like a two color print, it's like, you're a God. They're like, Oh my God, how did that happen? You know? Oh yes. The magic of printmaking. I love it. I still feel a little bit of that too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's also, but when you get to our level, it also gets incredibly frustrating when you're trying Mm -hmm. to get that perfect print and it just won't do what you want it to do. When I was an undergrad, I had a, an awesome printmaking teacher, John Dow, and he was a member of the voodoo religion and he wore all white and he was a very dark skinned African-American guy and all white. And he would stay so perfectly clean and I could never understand it. And we had a good relationship, but he always looked at me like, you are such a mess, Burst. Like, <laughs> you can never get anything right because there's so many rules and, and systems to printmaking. Mm-hmm. If you're in a printmaking class and there's a certain expectation, I always had a hard time matching those expectations because I was always like, well, I could just draw on it now or paint it and then that'll fix mm-hmm. it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, I'm definitely a sloppy printmaker. <laughs> yeah. I definitely relate to that and that imperfection. But I feel like that also connects to like what you were saying about the circles, just drawing it and then there it is and it's not totally perfect and that's okay or even that's more than okay. That's like part of the meaning. Absolutely. Yeah. And reacting to it. Like, I mean, it mm-hmm. causes you to react in a different way. 
and you don't know what's going to happen, which is, you know, part of the, you know, what keeps it interesting. Yeah. Part of the beauty of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like those little imperfections as the viewer make your eye move around and give a little bit more like visual interest as well. Yeah. I think it slows you down and I definitely want to do that. You know, you could go to a museum and spend 30 seconds in front of a painting and that's okay. But I think as the artist, you long for people to engage in your work for a decent amount of time and form a relationship Mm -hmm. with it. And, you know, by letting all those fumbles happen within the artwork, I think it causes the viewer to engage more as opposed to like they look at it, they get it, and they move on. Hmm. I want my works to be more like a hike through the forest, Hmm. you know, than a run to the grocery store. (laughs) Yes. Uh, That's a great metaphor. I love that. And I mean, you talked a little bit about how you are or are not (laughs) really handling the business side of all of this. Is there anything that you feel like is helpful or that even maybe that you wish you knew or that you wish you were able to do more of? Yeah. I mean, I would say what I feel like I need to do is focus more on documentation and Mm -hmm. document things right when they're done, which Mm -hmm. will help me two ways. I'll have that document to apply to places, but It'll also force me to say, all right, that piece is done. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. a lot of times I'll just keep going in and changing and, you know, keep letting the piece evolve. And, you know, giving yourself just the forgiveness of it's okay to only apply to three things in a year. Mm-hmm. It's okay to take a year off. You know, that stuff's not really dictated by age. So mm-hmm. you can always get back into it because, you know, some years I'll apply to 15 things, some years I'll only apply to three things. And, you know, over the course of your career, all those things add up. So, you know, you might not feel like you've done anything for a while, but then when you think back and start writing down where you've been in shows and what you've done, it's fulfilling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it all adds up. I love that both of those things hand in hand, the, you know, trying to basically create better systems to make it easier, like document right when you're done and there we go. But then also at the same time, giving yourself that permission and grace to not be constantly having to apply to things. Yeah. And again, you get different things out of it. I mean, if you Mm want to have shows all the time, then you're going to have to put in the time. Like Mm -hmm. I said before, like, you know, I have friends that are showing pretty regularly and represented by galleries and, you know, I'm jealous of those people, but I also understand and see the amount of work they put into those things happening. Yeah. And I knew this go, my father's a poet as well as an English professor. So when I went into painting, he was very upfront with me and was like, listen, there's a lot of rejection, a lot Mm -hmm. of rejection involved in this kind of pursuit. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you just be ready for it. And right when I got out of school, and even right when I got out of grad school, there's a couple, I'd say there's a handful of really, you could call them prestigious shows in Philadelphia that are open calls. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I applied for those year after year after year after year. Mm -hmm. And I still apply for some of them once in a while. But you got to understand you're not going to get them sometimes. And it has a lot to do with how you're presenting yourself and Like we were saying, the presentation part takes a lot of work. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you got to weigh your expectations on what makes it worth your while. And for me, making the things really is in the end what makes it worth my while. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, and now with social that. media, I mean, I post things on Instagram, you know, every time I'm in the studio. So I feel like in some ways I'm showing all the time. <laughs> yes, I know. I love how it's sort of opened up the world for artists a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then do you ever have creative block? And if you do, how do you overcome that? Yeah, I definitely. And I, I'd say more than block, sometimes I feel like I shouldn't, let's say, be making those circles every time. Certain ways of making kind of become or feel like they're becoming a crutch. And, Mm. you know, how do you get past that to the next stage? And I find that just going for it and making a lot of stuff that you throw away or rip up Mm. or scribble out or scrape off is the way to work through that. I mean, Mm -hmm. when I was going through school, you know, looking at artists like Philip Gustin and all the Abex painters and, you know, the people that were teaching me, there was a big push on destroy it, destroy it, destroy, mm-hmm. you know, put it on, <laughs> scrape it off, put it on, scrape it off, put it mm-hmm. on, scrape it off. And that wrestling match with creativity, mm-hmm. because, you know, you're an elementary teacher. So everybody always is like, oh, your job's so fun. You <laughs> must get to play all day long. You know, this myth that these students walk into my classroom and are like, Good morning, Mr. Bursk. What are you going to teach us today? You know, it's like, it's not, it's it's convincing these people to wrestle with creativity. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a wrestling match. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but you learn something new each time. And that's kind of what has gotten me through those creative blocks. And I've been lucky enough to, I mean, I met my wife my freshman year in college, and we've been basically sharing a studio and a practice together for 30 years. Mm -hmm. So we have that close artist relationship where we can really kind of push each other one way or another. And we're very in tune with what the other is doing. So it's kind of having a partner in crime that can Mm -hmm. help you get to that next spot. Yeah, that's amazing to have that studio partner, life partner who can kind of help you through all of that. Yes, very lucky. And that yeah. Philadelphia Open Studio Tours, when people come through, our studio in the city, because we can't spend that much money on it, it's about, say, six feet wide, 15 feet long, but very tall. So it's a very small <laughs> spot. And people yeah. come in to see the work and they're like, you guys work here together? <laughs> and we're like, yeah, she's got that spot on the wall. I have this spot on the wall. And they're like, do you work at the same time? I'm like, yeah. It's like, being in the kitchen together, you know, you do this and I do that. And once in a while you can bounce off each other, but it's been incredibly great for both of us. Uh, and I'm just picturing the chefs yelling like behind, behind. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Cause oh. even though I don't care about messing up when I'm making those lines, I'm enjoying making a straight line. And if she bumped mm-hmm. into me and I'm on my 50th line of a uh. hundred, I'm going to be like, Oh no, uh. I'll have to <laughs> yeah. change this whole thing. Yeah, I love that. Just, you know, picturing that balance and the dance that happens in the studio. Yeah. Beautiful. And I also, you know, I love how you're talking about wrestling with the work and, you know, doing that yourself, but then also that our job is to encourage kids to take on that challenge, that wrestle and keep at it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of our job is convincing students Mm -hmm. that what they're doing is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And 
again, it's not like a math problem, right? I mean, it's, it, there's not one answer. Mm-hmm. So they usually think there's one answer mm-hmm. in their mind. And I was doing this project last week where we're doing symmetrical shapes and we're cutting the shapes out by, you know, folding the paper in half, drawing half a shape, cutting it out. And then we're gluing it and gluing the positive and the negative on a scribble background that I did with them. Mm. And they kept telling me, well, where does this go? Where does this shape go? And I'm like, mm-hmm. wherever you want it to go, <laughs> you're in charge. There's no right way or wrong way. And it's so funny to see how many students, they try to put it back together like a puzzle. And mm-hmm. I'm like, we cut that shape out so we could see that shape. Why would you put that shape back where it belongs? <laughs> and they don't, it blows their mind. And I'm like, this is what, you know, the skills that I'm teaching you are cutting, folding, seeing, and drawing. You know, the art is however you want to put it together. Yeah, uh, that's great. Just seeing how they push against that. Like they're, I feel like in most of their other classes, they're taught to look for what's the right answer, what, you know, but teacher, how do I do this? And then the yeah. teacher gives them an answer where this is just full of questions. <laughs> right. Leading to more questions. Mm-hmm. And that's good. I mean, I, I said, I tell them, I'm like, that's, what learning is, you know, trying mm-hmm. things out, seeing what happens, and then making more decisions after that. Yeah, totally. And they're like, it's hard, but this is hard. <laughs> I <laughs> said, well, yeah, it's school. I was like, if it was easy, it'd be called vacation. <laughs> yeah. And I know whenever I do some kind of demo, I try not to finish it. I'm usually kind of doing it like upside down. Now, the way I have my camera set up, it's still like upside down on my table (laughs) doing video. But in the classroom, it would be kind of holding it in front of me, like drawing upside down. Yes. Just trying to show them like how you move your hand around or how you move the material around. Mm -hmm. How it ends up is, again, it's up to them. But then also not giving them any like finished work to copy because there's that tendency to want to copy. So in that way, trying to push them to, you know, like there isn't any finished solution in front of you. You have to figure out what that's going to look like. Yeah, because they have a very large preconceived notion of what it should be at the Mm. end. And I always tell them, I'm like, that's boring. If we watched a football game and we knew who the winner was going to be, why would we watch it? You know, it's Mm -hmm. just done. We watch it maybe because it's interesting to see it happening. And that's what's interesting about, you know, making art. You get to witness this kind of growth happen in front of your eyes. Yeah. Our little pandemic bubble includes some neighbor families. Like we're in a big building. So the people that kind of share our building and I've been doing, you know, a couple of times I've done little art projects with my daughter and some of her little friends and, just seeing the variety, seeing some of them really pushing each other, like that doesn't look like a face. You know, right. that's supposed to be a person. And <laughs> then the other kid kind of pushing back and being like, it's my kind of face. Like I'm creating this the way I want it to look. And I yeah. just, I'm all about that. I'm like, yes, it doesn't have to look like what you think a face should look like. <laughs> right. Yeah. We just did a monochromatic portrait project school-wide and I let them pick whatever color they wanted to use. And then they used, you know, markers and crayons and colored pencils. So I guess it was about, I don't know, 
500 to 600 portraits when they're done. Mm. And since every kid could pick their own color, when I hung them up in the hallway, all up against each other doing the whole spectrum. So kindergarten and fourth grade and third grade and second and first, they're all intermingled. So Mm. it's really interesting to see, you know, how these different age levels create the face. And it's the older kids that really, really give me a hard time about noses. And (laughs) I'm always like, there's more than one way to draw a nose. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And then I tell them, you know, it's about the color. This project is about color. You could draw a smiley face and it would be successful if you used monochromatic color. You know, try mm -hmm. to give them some other thing to hang on to and to let the image be secondary. Yeah, I love that focus on color. And you talked about your studio a bit. I was curious if the pandemic has affected you being able to be in the studio at all. You know, was there a time where you weren't able to go or has it pretty much been okay and open the whole time? When we were in lockdown, we didn't go really just Mm -hmm. because we were really and still are trying to cut out anything I don't have to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. But luckily I have a small studio right across the hallway from my bedroom. Oh, nice. So it's got, you know, my drawing table and it's got a wall that I can put my stuff on. So I was able to continue to work because I have the space at home. They opened up pretty quickly at my studio building because once they got all the health and safety precautions that they needed to, it's not a real crowded place. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you just go in and go to your studio, it's just you. And then they limited the bathroom. You know, now we knock on the bathroom. If somebody's in there, you wait for them to leave and then you go in. There's a lot of galleries and businesses on the first floor. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that was closed down, but the studios were open. Nice. I feel like so many artists had to really shift how and where they work. Yeah. All the like practical decisions, maybe like moving to smaller work on paper could also be part of that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And for me, luckily, I had already simplified down to that stuff. And Mm -hmm. again, like I said, I'm lucky enough that I have a big enough house where I have allotted spaces for those kind of activities. Yeah. Yeah. I I really felt for those people, especially ceramicists who had to learn how to work in their apartments and whatnot. Like it's such a battle. And again, I mean, with everything right now, it's all about just holding out, holding Mm -hmm. out. And it seems like we're getting there. We're almost there. We're almost there. You know? Uh, Yeah. So close. (laughs) I posted one of my memories that popped up on Facebook today was a picture of me and my wife at a benefit show that we were in. And there are just hundreds of people, you know, in Uh, one room. Those times were so good. You didn't know how good we had it. Yeah, it's so strange to think back and, you know, see those pictures. And, you know, now you're like immediately just thrown off by those pictures. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also curious about scheduling and kind of how you fit in art making alongside teaching. I guess we talked about sort of the seasons and the times, but more on like a day to day like, what does a week look like for you? We're weekend warriors down in the city. Yeah. We try to get down there <laughs> at least once a weekend. That way mm-hmm. we feel like we're not just sending money to the realtor and mm-hmm. we're getting our money's worth. Mm-hmm. And it's just nice to get down there for, you know, four or five hours and not be able to put laundry in or do dishes or, you know, mm-hmm. everything's removed, which is why we decided, I guess, about 10 years ago now that we needed to rent a space. Number one, nobody's coming out to our house to see our art. Mm-hmm. So by committing to a studio down there, it, it forces us to really you know, be engaged more. And yeah. then as far as the workday is concerned, you're exhausted by the mm-hmm. end of the day. 
when I got bumped down to elementary, I could not keep up with these kids and <laughs> yeah. I'm not a go to the gym kind of guy. So I, a friend of mine talked me into start running and mm-hmm. I fell in love with running and have been doing, you know, build up to marathons and ultra marathons and things like that. Amazing. So that has helped me kind of create or be in a schedule. So mm-hmm. if I'm training for something, you know, I know how much time I need to go out and run for. And that in turn has helped me kind of situate my studio So Mm -hmm. when I come out of the shower, you know, after working all day, after making dinner for the family, and then after going out for a run, taking a shower, I've got to the rhythm where I can go into my studio for a half hour and do a little bit before I sit down to watch TV. Yeah, I love all of that. And you have two kids? Yes. So my daughter's 20. She's a sophomore at at Temple in the education department. So she's going to the family business. And my son's a senior in high school and Mm. he just got accepted to local college. He wants to be a farmer. He's going to go to school for agriculture. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I guess, having them old enough that you can kind of like let them be, or, you know, your daughter's probably off at college or maybe She's she's actually been home for the last year. Yeah. But Yeah. And that was another thing that I knew was coming, the openness of my schedule. So again, my dad being a poet, he prepared me for that. Once I had kids, he was Mm -hmm. like, listen, you're going to feel like you don't have any time to do anything, (laughs) but hold the course because eventually Mm -hmm. it's going to come around and you're going to have a lot more time. And I feel like between getting my feet centered and teaching elementary and my kids getting older, I feel like I'm going into a really good spot to Mm -hmm. really up my game as far as reaching out for opportunities and documenting my work and things like that. Because when I had little kids, as you know, I'm sure it takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Takes a lot of your time. It sure does. (laughs) Yeah. When I went to grad school, I had my daughter in 2000, had my son in 2002, I started a part-time three-year program in 2001. So I went through a three-year grad program for painting (laughs) while I was raising two very young children. So that, as far as struggling to keep up a studio practice, especially one that's being evaluated and you're earning a grade for and you're taking loans for, Mm -hmm. that really kind of set the standard for, (laughs) all right, I'm devoted to this, you know, no matter what. I need to do, I got to find time. And at this point, I feel like I'm in a really good spot where I'm doing these small paintings. You know, there's just a cup of water and a brush and a pack of tempras. So it's very easy to kind of come in and give myself, you know, a half hour or some nights is an hour. Sometimes it's two hours. So that's kind of how I've uh, been able to schedule it. Yeah. Doing a grad program with two babies and toddlers. <laughs> yeah. It was that's intense. a lot. Ooh. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> And then I talked my wife into going back to school right after that. Uh, and she went to Rutgers and did a full-time program. So then she was doing a full-time program at Rutgers and I still had what, like a four-year-old and a six-year-old. So, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's heartening to hear from people who've kind of made it through. <laughs> You're on the other end of this and seeing your time open up a bit. Yeah, it's something that I'm looking towards. Yeah, right. You don't want them to grow up too fast, but at the right. same time, you know, it's okay to to celebrate and envision that future. <laughs> yeah. 
Because it's coming no matter what, right? <laughs> right. You can't stop it. You can't slow it down. No. Uh, yeah, I've been loving seeing my daughter get older and be able to do more of her own thing, like be more independent and also right. just have such personality. Yeah, it's definitely bittersweet. Yeah. Seeing that growth and being like, oh, my baby. <laughs> right. But then also she has more freedom. I have more freedom. Right. You got to yeah. find the good in it. By next fall, if they can go to college again, then, uh, you know, I could be an empty nester for the first time. And, you know, we're like, oh, that's going to be awesome and weird at the same time. <laughs> right. Yeah. That must feel so strange. <laughs> Absolutely. Same my daughter was away for a year, but then once COVID happened and school went online, she's mm -hmm. been back now for close to a year as well, which has been awesome. But, you know, I'm looking forward for her to be able to go out and do all those things. Yeah, I feel like this is all really hard on kids and on young people, especially. Yeah, I mean, I think their lives have been really the ones, the most turned upside down, frankly. Mm -hmm. And they've done an amazing job adapting. I mean, even the mm -hmm. elementary students that I have full-time, for them to be able to wear a mask for that long, you know, these are five-year-olds that's their first time in school. You know, it's yeah. a lot to ask. It's a lot oh. for them to deal with. Yeah. I was talking to somebody recently about how flexible and how like that ability to adapt in this generation, what that's going to mean for the future. Yeah. I think it's going to be good for them mm -hmm. in the end. I mean, I think they're going to be able to use that because I think they're going to need it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And I feel like that almost maybe le leads into, I just have some fun kind of wrap-up questions. So one is really sort of big, open-ended. What are you curious about right now? What am I curious about right now? Well, like I said, I've fallen in love with running. So I'm very curious about how far I can actually run. I'm training for my second 50-miler right now. Wow. So those adventures have been really fun and mm -hmm. painful at the same time, mm -hmm. <laughs> which pushes me into my studio practice and makes me curious about, you know, all right, so I've, especially in 2020, I've made all these small paintings that are similar and the similar size, materials, subject matter. You know, I'm curious to see how I can wrap them up into mm. a concise, you know, whether it's in a book form or an exhibition or mm. so that, you know, it's not just one at a time on a studio wall. It's the whole ensemble together. And so I'm really curious to kind of take a wider look at the work that I've made over the course of the last year or two mm -hmm. and see what I see. Yeah, that's a great sort of reflective practice. And then putting it all together. I love the idea of a book or yeah, maybe it ends up taking the form of some kind of installation or yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which again, those kind of curiosities I'm hoping will push me to do it, you know, I'll sit in front of the computer again and, and scan things and shoot things properly oh, and those kind yes. of things. All the like grunt work. <laughs> yes. I need an intern. <laughs> right. Totally. <laughs> okay. Fun, kind of silly question. What is your favorite food? I'm a Philly boy, so I'm going to say soft pretzels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yum. And last couple things, is there anyone that you'd want to thank or give a shout out to? Sure. I mean, I shout out to my wife, Danielle Bursk, and my kids, Josie and Tyler, my whole family, and then my mm -hmm. whole team at Nishamini. 
all the, the awesome art teachers I get to work with and the awesome specialist teachers I get to work with at Hoover mm-hmm. and my students. I mean, again, they give me so much. Yeah. Beautiful. And last thing, where can our listeners connect with you online? My Instagram is at JJ Bursk mm-hmm. and Facebook is Justin Bursk. And my website is justinjosephbursk.com. Mm-hmm. But Instagram is the best place because I post way too much. They'll know where I ran, how far I ran, what Ooh. marks I made that night, what colors I'm using. <laughs> I like to be interactive with my posting. <laughs> awesome. I love that though. And I will link to all of that as well. So Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Justin. No problem. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.